Hi, this is Colin Shaw. A number of our listeners have been in touch to ask how they can find out how they're doing in their customer experience initiatives. To help our listeners, we've created a simple customer experience health check. Stay tuned to after the show and I'll give you the URL where you'll be able to undertake your customer experience health check. Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. If you're in a very competitive market, you've got to give customers something of value better than the competition. not like they weren't thinking. It's just that the focus before was on product and on operations. And what's new about my matrix is the focus is now on customer and competition. If you've got the right mindset, if you've got a customer focused mindset, then that becomes the competitive advantage. Well, Colin, I'm happy to introduce you to a special guest that we have. She's a, an old friend of mine from the academic field, Barbara Kahn from uh, Wharton, uh, Wharton School. And Barbara is one of those people who does a lot of different things and does them all very well. Uh, you've got academics who are very research-oriented and do that. Academics who are kind of more outward-facing and interact with industry and, and people who give speeches and people who lead organizations and I'm convinced that that Barbara exists on this earth to make the rest of us feel bad because you know, she does all that and does it well. Excellent. Welcome, Barbara. Well, thank you. And uh, Barbara's here specifically to talk about her new book, uh, The Shopping Revolution, How Successful Retailers Win Customers in an Era of Endless Disruption. Welcome, Barbara. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. The first thing that surprised me about this podcast is you actually revealing, Ryan, that you have a friend. Well... <laughs> My lawyers asked that I actually not use the word friend, but <laughs> so uh, Barbara, why don't we start right in uh, with the book? Why why this topic? What led you to to look at this and say um, there's an opportunity here for for kind of some new understanding on this topic? What's what led you to decide to to write it? Well. I had been teaching at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania for a very long time, but I had left and then I came back in 2011. And when I came back in 2011, I was leading the J.H. Baker Retailing Center at the Wharton School. J.H. Baker, for those of you who might not know, was the president of Kohl's. And he was the one who made Kohl's what Kohl's is. Also fortunate for the Wharton School, he was a Wharton alum, unlike <laughs> Well, I'm not going to go there, um, but he is a Wharton <laughs> alum, and when he retired, he was quite wealthy, and he decided to give a bunch of money to the Wharton School to link the retailing industry with the Wharton students. That was his goal, to really make that connection, and I ran that center from 2011 to 2017 when I stepped down. And during that time, the retailing industry was in chaos, in, in amazing disruption. People were talking about it as a retail apocalypse. So when I set, stepped down, the publisher of Wharton Digital Press called me on the phone and said, would you like to write a book? And I went, about what? 
And he said, well, weren't you, didn't you just have a front row seat between industry and academia on retailing during a very interesting time in the industry? Why don't you write about those experiences? So that's why I did it. And I tell you that story to tell you, it wasn't my intention to do that. So it wasn't like I was sitting there writing a diary the whole time I was there and taking notes. So when I decided to do this, I had to reflect and think about what have I learned over the last seven years? And, and I feel like I have learned a lot, and it did, it did result in this book. But it wasn't something that I was thinking about in advance of doing. So when you kind of organized these insights and thought back on these things, you, you developed this uh, matrix called the Con Retailing Success Matrix, yeah, uh, which is quite funny. a coincidence because your name is Con <laughs> also. I uh, know. I couldn't resist. I just really figured lucky I that never you found this that. opportunity. <laughs> so uh, it's a, a very nice two-by-two. Two. Can you walk us through kind of the dimensions and then how you use it in real broad term. Obviously, the whole book relies on this matrix to kind of uh, guide people through the insights. But just walk us through kind of the quadrants and the, and the dimensions. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing. Like I said, when you, I had lots of experience, lots of interviews and, you know, had talked to all the key players in the industry because Jay Baker was very well connected when he came. And then we also, just on our own from Wharton, we knew a lot of the new digital players like Warby Parker is a, those guys are Wharton grads and a lot of the other digital startups came from Wharton. So I had a lot of access, but in order to take all these act anecdotes and make them into something that makes sense, you really need to have a framework. So I went, I'm a marketing professor and I went back to the two basic principles of marketing and the first, well, there's three, but I only went to two because I wanted a two by two. And you need to save something for the follow-up book. Right, Exactly. I got more, I got more to go. The first principle is the principle of customer value. So that says you got to give customers something that they value. And the second principle is the principle of differential advantage. If you're in a very competitive market, you've got to give customers something of value better than the competition. And with those two key ideas, I I composed the con matrix. Now, one of the things I want to say that's really interesting about this, before I developed my own matrix, which I have to say a lot of people, it's resonated with a lot of people. It's been like more successful than I imagined. But before I made up my own matrix, obviously I have tons of books on retailing on my shelf. So I went back and I looked to see what the other matrix were. And there were no other organizing framework in retailing before I did this, that really explicitly recognized the customer, which is mind-boggling to me. And it's because the previous frameworks were very much product-focused and logistics-focused. So if you talk to a retailer, which I had over the last seven years, and you say, like, what's a good retailer? They'll tell you it's a good merchant. And what a good merchant means is someone who knows product, who knows how to merchandise, who knows how to build a product assortment. And the other part that they're very much focused on is operations. Once you figure out a really good product assortment, how do you get that to the store? How do you manage inventory? How do you manage supply chain? So it's not like they weren't thinking. It's just that the focus before was on product and on operations. And what's new about my matrix is the focus is now on customer and competition. And so it's a two by two. The rows are the customer value. What does a customer want? Well, they want product. That's true. That doesn't go away. That's what other people have always said. But they also want a product from retailers they trust. And so one of the things that's new in my matrix is the second column, which I call customer experience. So the first column is product benefits. And the second column of the two by two 
is customer experience. Then the rows represent that competitive in the competition. And the way I say you can do that in retailing is to either increase benefits or take away costs. And that gives me my two by two. And if I walk through the four, the four quadrants, um, the four quadrants, one of them on the product side, benefits, that's what I call the brand. But it can also be design, technology. That's like a, a strategy that really exists based on giving amazing brand or product. So luxury falls in that. Some of the digitally native vertical brands like Warby Parker or Bonobos or Casper I'd put there. The retailers that sell multi-brands but sell luxury like Saks I put there or Nike. All of that's in that product benefit, product brand quadrant. So this is focused on kind of the, the focused on the product and, and also focused on increasing the, the pleasure, the benefit. Right. Of, you know, why you buy a product? Because like I just want to own Chanel. You know, right. there's a, it's like that. Or Nike or whatever. There's a lot of it. can be at different price points. It doesn't have to be at the top price point, but obviously high luxury falls in there. So now, again, that's not new, but, I, but it's part of my matrix. What's a little bit new is the customer experience benefit side. So that idea is that people go to a retailer to have fun. You know, they go to a retailer mm. where the customer experience is part of what's driving them to the store. And things, examples there, I'd put Italy or Sephora. Sephora, you know, if you go into empty malls, the Sephora store is crowded. I have seen people stand in front of Sephora crying when it's closed, and I'm not kidding. I mean, that <laughs> is a customer experience that's really fun. It's like a playground in there. That's what I mean by benefits and customer experience. Now, on the bottom row, that's takeaway pain. And so one a pain of product, of course, is price. So low price will always win. There's never going to be a time where low price isn't a viable strategy. It's hard to do well, but there's always a, a benefit customers will value. So there's tons of retailers in that quadrant, like Walmart, Costco, TJ Maxx. They all have different strategies, but they're competing on low cost. And then the fourth quadrant is take away the pain in customer experience. And I call that frictionless. Take away all, make it easy. And a lot of times this depends on developing data and really understanding your customer very well by collecting lots and lots of data by them. And of course, a poster child for this quadrant is Amazon. So that's the four quadrants of the, of the con matrix, but that's just the beginning of the strategy. Would we characterize this as, as kind of four different ways of winning, uh, is heading towards one of these quadrants and, and kind of cleanly defining yourself that way? Or is this uh, a path that retailers can travel through over time? Or do we, do we seek to win in all four simultaneously? Okay, so that's where we get into the strategy. And so what the strategy is, is I described the four, uh, four quadrants. And what I would say is that you got to figure out what the threshold is, or what I call customer value or customer fair value in each one of these four quadrants. So what's the minimum that you need to do to effectively compete in each one of these four quadrants? And I would argue all retailers have to meet that threshold in order to not go out of business. So if you look at the tons of retailers who have gone out of business, I would argue they weren't good enough on one, at least one of these four quadrants, if not more than one. Radio Shack, 
JCPenney's still in business, but not doing that well on some of these Sears we're all talking about now. A lot of these retailers that just haven't made it either had really bad in-store experience or their prices were out of whack or they didn't have the right product or they weren't convenient. Any one of those things, you've got to at least be up to fair value. But what I've noticed, and this is the thing that's a little bit new about my matrix, is that the winners were the best at one thing, one of the quadrants. But more than that, they leveraged that leadership advantage in one of those four quadrants to be the best at a second quadrant. And that's what I call the two quadrant strategy. And that was what was really new when I was, what the way, I, once I came up with this matrix, I then tried to plot all the market leaders on my matrix. And that's when I realized, based on just thinking about it and looking at who was winning, that these winners were not good at just one thing and good enough at everything else. They were good at everything, you know, up to fair value, but they were the best in two quadrants. So let's just, I mean, obviously Amazon, best in frictionless, they leverage that advantage to be the best at low price also. So that's what I would argue is, is Amazon's strategy, the best at frictionless, the best at low price, good enough at brand, and good enough at customer experience in stores. And I describe that fourth quadrant customer experience as a physical experience. But what's interesting, perhaps, to think about what this matrix means is to look at Walmart. So Walmart, biggest retailer in the world, was very, very good for years and years and years on low price, on operational excellence. We taught in all our classes, you know, the, the prototype of operational excellence is Walmart. But in recent times, that wasn't good enough. So Walmart had to take their leadership in low price and become a leader in frictionless as well. And that's why I would argue they ended up buying Jet.com for $3.3 They've been developing all sorts of ways to make it more convenient for people to shop with Walmart. So they've done things like shop online and pick up in the store. They've done all sorts of new things to make it really easy to shop at Walmart. In addition to low price, they need it to be frictionless. And that was the insight. Luxuries. Luxury could compete on amazing brands and products, beautiful things, but it wasn't enough. You're seeing now Louis Vuitton and Gucci doing amazing things in customer experience. Some of them are now um, dabbling in online, like net, partnering with Net-A-Porter or doing some of those other things that are happening interesting in the luxury online space. It's not enough to be good at the best at one of these quadrants now. The industry is so competitive. You've got to be the, take that leadership advantage and be the best in two quadrants. And that's what the whole strategy and the framework means. So, Barbara, the, I'm trying to think of the difference between um, when you know organizations weren't really thinking about customers or the retailers weren't really thinking about customers and that that leap over to starting to include customers and great to see that you've you know you've included customer experience in the the matrix because isn't part of the danger that people just do what they've always done and isn't part of the problem that you know that in fact i i went to see a a, a retailer who shall be nameless uh, which i doubt will be around in 10 years time but you know a famous organization where when i was talking to the the c-suite it was just like they were in denial uh, that they you know it's like um it must have been like when 
Blockbuster were thinking about buying Netflix and go, no, it's you know, streaming's never going to catch on. It, it, and so I guess it's my questions about sort of the mindset and how how these organisations are changing the mindset from being operationally driven to having a whole column in your matrix to do with customer experience. Yeah, that's to me that was really mind boggling. The idea that retailers that are right close to the customer really weren't customer focused is really shocking. And I agree, it took them a long time to figure that out. I, you know, it, I, I mostly focused on the states, but I think it was true around the world. And all of a sudden, people recognized what Amazon was doing. And Jeff Bezos has always said he's customer focused. He's maniacally focused on the customer, and he really is. Um, yeah. but, but the idea that these retailers were, and it took them the longest time. So you would go to department stores here and they'd be fretting about their product or their forecasting or all this other stuff. And they would forget to pay attention to the customer experience in the store. Would, and, and then what would happen is when they were like deer in headlights and they got worried because their sales were going down, what'd they do? They reduced costs and they pulled sales associates out of the store. You know, it was shocking. They made the store experience worse. It's really surprising how long it took for these retailers to recognize that it does make it makes a difference and you got to pay attention to the customer. I would say I think the retailers have gotten the message now. It might be too little too late, but I do think they've understood it. And, and, and therefore, it isn't like a key differentiator just the mindset of that senior team to be able to get their brains around it? Yeah, to figure out. One of the examples I use in my book, which to me was, a, you know, it was kind of a metaphor for this idea and why it took them so long to see it, was when I was doing research on Amazon, because, you know, Amazon doesn't release all these white papers about their strategy, so you kind of have to be a detective to go out and figure it out. And when I was trying to figure out, I wrote a whole chapter on Amazon to try to figure out the Amazon strategy. And the thing that I really struck me when I was doing this research was that in 1997, they invented one-click shopping. Okay, that was a good idea. But what was surprising about it was that they patented it. Now, that was really amazing to me. How could they take an idea like one-click shopping, which makes so much sense in hindsight, and patent it? And they had the patent until 2017, which means every single time you got something online that was only took one click to purchase, you were doing it through the Amazon platform one way or another, and they were getting money for it. Barnes & Noble's figured out a way to do a one-click shopping purchase. It's not that hard technically, and Amazon sued them because they own that patent. And, then, and Barnes and & Noble had to add another click. So the, to get into the mindset, like you were talking about, of these old retailers, how on earth could Bezos or Amazon patent one-click shopping? That is just not rocket science. And the reason sure. is, if you go back to 1997, you would under, if you ever worked with a web designer in the first, early days of the Internet, they would come with this whole notebook of like the landing page and the this page. Mm -hmm. It would be pages and pages. And the goal would be to get people to click on links to go deeper and deeper and deeper into your website. The intuition, and this is the same intuition in like grocery stores, was to keep people in the store as long as possible. Put the milk in the back. So people have through the store on web, make it so that they deeper into your web page. The insight being the longer we can keep you on the web page or in the store, the more you're going to buy. That is not a customer focused approach. 
And and Amazon goes, you know, when I want to buy what I want to buy, I want to do it as fast as possible. That was a patentable idea. That's like really shocking. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, and and everything is always is always interesting in 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 hindsight. But the, the what what do you think is therefore happening around the 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 retail space at the moment? And I'm now thinking of you know shopping malls and and obviously people buying much more online, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Where, where do you think that goes? Yeah, so I mean, it, the people, like I said, I think people got it, and I I use my matrix. It's been really useful for for plotting everybody's strategy. I haven't found a strategy I can't plot, so I, that's why I feel it's pretty generalizable. And so, and I think the you know the implications that I'm saying about two quadrant strategy, good enough at everything else. That's the first thing, and then look for your two quadrant strategy. I feel really does define what people are trying to do. So, you know, one of the things, um, you know, that I feel is retail is not dead. Bad retail is dead. A lot of people are saying that, and I completely agree. If, if there's no reason to go into your store, people are not going to go into your store, period, the end. That, again, is just common sense. So now you're going to have to give them a reason to go to the store. So the big players, Amazon, Walmart, Target, those guys, a lot of the players in China, which are amazing retail, they're, they're really doing well, they're giving people very easy, frictionless, very, very easy shopping at good prices. Can people compete in other dimensions? Sure. Luxury is also doing really well. They're giving you beautiful products you cannot buy online. They do not sell the luxury products if they can help it online. Sometimes there's counterfeits and bad unauthorized sellers selling them. But basically, the luxury product tries not to be on Amazon or something like that. And they're giving you a, such incredibly enjoyable, wonderful ex experiences. Gucci built this beautiful new store, kind of a museum in Italy, where it's really exciting to go. You're also seeing like independent bookstores doing really well, because they're creating this new community experience. They give you something you can't get online. So basically, what I think you're seeing in the industry is it's kind of sorting itself out to recognizing it's an omni-channel world. There's some things you want to do online, and there's some things you're going to want to do in the store, and they're kind of figuring out how to make a seamless integration between the online and offline experience. So what you want to buy online, you can buy online, and what you want to go into the store and try on, touch and feel, talk to somebody you can do. And I think that's what's kind of sorting out in retail. So I was reading a report the other day that, that was actually talking about the irony of the fact that shopping malls, high, uh, high streets, main, main streets, as you would call them in the States, um, you know, one of the saving graces is becoming the, the coffee shop, you know, which is therefore part of the experience and therefore people are going to the coffee shop to have a cup of coffee and have an experience and then do some retailing and that there afterwards and that for me as somebody that's been talking about customer experience for 17 years you know and and in fact before me pine and gilmore talking about that whole experience economy where what people are buying is they're buying an experience i guess that's what you're talking about in sort of the higher end it's positioning yourself as being an experience and you happen to sell a product at the same time is that right yeah, I mean, if your leadership strategy is going to be customer experience, that's that's going to work as a strategy. It doesn't have to just be high end. You know, like you're sure. talking about a local 
coffee shop or a local bookstore or just trying a running store, getting people together. There's something that's happening in the store that it's not going to happen online. We're still human beings. We need the social interaction. We need all five senses, sure. not just our visual or sound. So yeah, there's, there's going to be uh, something that drives people to nice customer experiences. I agree. But when they're there, usually there has to be something else that's going to drive. It's not just the experience. It's going to either be good food, a nice product, you know, a service that you can't get elsewhere. So you'll see, or, you know, maybe you're going somewhere because it's, it's cheaper to buy the products there than somewhere else. So I would argue, even if you're focusing on a really good customer experience, which could drive people to your uh, environment, it, it's not quite enough in this world of retailing. You're going to have to do something else. But it's not just customer experience. If you, when you look at those, you know, big streets you're talking about, though it's an interesting thing that's happening. They're also brand builders. So a lot of these stores are building beautiful flagship stores. Where I guess sure. you could describe that as a customer experience, but it's also building brand. Uh, and that's kind of interesting. They'll have really big, beautiful flagship stores, and then they'll have, a, a, to, to accompany it, they'll have online shopping or things you can buy online. Or you're also seeing on some of those shopping streets pop-ups, the idea of something that's not there permanently, that's a temporary sure. kind of thing to get attention, maybe as an advertising strategy, maybe because it's a new product that's being introduced, maybe because of seasons, you know, Christmas or whatever. But so all of these things, they're changing. And I agree, a lot of it is, in the physical store, a lot of it is new thoughts about customer experience. So one of the areas that with this, one of our podcasts wouldn't be a podcast without um, us me talking about Apple because I love Apple. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it always seems to me that uh, I do very little retailing uh, in the sense of going to a place, but I do enjoy going to the Apple store because it, it feels more like a club to me. I feel like, and this goes back to the brand building and all the rest of it, but it, it feels like I'm I'm mixing with other geeks, basically. Yeah, and they, does that make and sense? They, yes, act, absolutely. You know, Angela Orange from who used to do uh, CEO, highest paid woman in UK, comes over and runs Apple Retail. Apple Retail obviously was always state of the art. They did the Genius Bar, they did all sorts of things that were brilliant, but it did need a new look. And she came over and did amazing things with the Apple Store. You go into a mall, there's still more people per square foot in an Apple Store than any of the other stores that I see, and it's it's a lot of different things. It's, you know, they have lessons there that they, they, they want to be a community center. So yes, they're everything tech, but they're also teaching you different things. You know, you're coming to look at the beautiful new Apple products and, and the earphones, you know, the, the, all, the whole experience. You don't have to just be tech to love an Apple store because there's always something fun going on in that store and they encourage that. So for those of our listeners who don't work in retailing, so, um, but who work in B2B spaces or, or manufacturers, people who are kind of further up the supply chain um, from the customer facing. Are there lessons from this that they can apply? Like what advice would you give to someone based on how retailing is changing if I'm consumer packaged goods manufacturer? Like how would this help someone um, in, in one of those roles? Well, you know, like, as I said, what I added to the conversation is the marketing perspective which is marketing 101 for those of us in it, customer and, com and competition, right? But 
retail truth, and this is why all the retail books of my shelf uh, were about product and supply chain. If you don't get your supply chain right, you don't have good retail. My focus has been on the customer strategy, on kind of the sizzle. That's kind of the kind of person I am. You know, I sell customer experience. But if you cannot line up your supply chain, line up your logistics, you're not going to win. That is critical. So you see a lot of what Amazon's investing in is, you know, building the warehouse and getting the system. A lot of the really, really advanced retailers like Burlington that's doing really well, TJ Maxx, Ross, those are operation strategies. Those are distribution center strategies. Those are logistics, figuring out how to move product around, how to predict inventory, how to to forecast the right demand to get the inventory in the right place at the right time, delivery, figuring out ways to make that cheap, all sorts of like incredible creativity and newness is being done in operations. It's just not my expertise, so I don't speak to it. But I, I think that it's more important than ever to figure out those costs and logistics issues. It doesn't go away. It's just that the customer experience now is built on top of building good products and getting them there efficiently. So it sounds like the bad news for retailers is you, you can't stop being good at what you were good at before. Exactly. It's just you need to be better at more things. If there's any good news, it's you don't need to be the best at everything. No, but here's um, but the bad news. Yeah, you're stuff. right. That's the good news. It's two quadrant strategy, not four quadrant strategy. But the bad news is you got to be good enough at all four quadrants, and the expectations are constantly being ratcheted up. So, like you think about what Amazon's done to our mindset. We could have lived, you know, two years ago, not getting our product within two hours. Now everything has to be immediate. <laughs> that is changing expectations. You know, we used to go into crummy retail and wait and wait and wait until the salesperson found us. Now we're indignant. That can't happen. So the expectations are ratcheting up all the time. So even though you only have to be the best at two, you have to be good enough at everything else. And that is not standing still. It's like, I think I may have mentioned this before, but one of the questions I always ask audiences is how many people think that business is going to get simpler over the next 10 years? And... (laughs) And clearly it's not. And therefore, uh, maybe your quadrants will, will progress to being three that you need in 10 years' yeah, time, 15 like years' time. three-dimensional cube, exactly. You <laughs> yeah. still have that third principle hovering around. Great. <laughs> So I, I think we're going to need to pull this together. Any any last any last thoughts, both Ryan and Barbara, on so what is it people should do, uh, and then Barbara, you know, how can people get hold of you if they want to get hold of you? Okay. Well, my last thought here here's the thing. I have been studying retailing now for you know close to ten years, I guess, really in depth and talking to industry and doing research in it. And even now, it's gone through a, a revolution in some sense. I think retail's fun. You know, it's creative. It's it. There's the exciting thing is that all these new players are coming in and they're disrupting the old models. Like, look at Dollar yeah. Shave Club. You know, that's crazy that they put a dent in Gillette. 
that is amazing. The guy is like a crazy guy. And he came up with this terrific <laughs> idea. And look at what, so like, there's lots of opportunity. It's just that you can't stay still and, and do what you used to do. You got to do something sure. fun and exciting. Yeah, no, that, and that's a really good way to sign it off. Any other last thoughts from you, Ron? Oh, I'll, I'll just say, um, and this is going to reveal my academic bias here, but I think there's a danger, and this is kind of a meta point brought out when I was reading Barbara's book, but there's a danger in overlearning from anecdotes. And, and while great examples are fantastic, there's, it's just so important to take a step back and try to put everything in its proper place and look for some of the broader patterns. And so... Uh, that's where, where this idea of, of using frameworks as a way of kind of stepping back from problems is, is so useful. And so one of the things I enjoyed about the book was its kind of tool heaviness, the fact that it, it gave different kind of perspectives instead of just an endless list of examples. And I think the, 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 the thing for me that, that just gets reinforced in this conversation is that mindset is a competitive uh, advantage. So, you know, if you've got the right mindset, if you've got a customer-focused mindset, then that becomes the competitive advantage. And it's difficult to get and, you know, difficult to convert. You know, again, things, think of the, the blockbusters, the circuit cities, and, you know, all of those organizations that have gone by, by the wayside. So well, even, even the mindset of needing to be great at more than one thing. I mean, yeah. that, that's not the lesson that was taught in business schools even no. 10 years ago, no. which was you need to be great at one thing. Yeah. No, good point. Well made. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Barbara's book is The Shopping Revolution, and you can get it on Amazon. So um, I, I really suggest that you search that out and uh, and download it with one click. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I will I will let people know that if you want to hear more from Barbara, she co-hosts a, a weekly program on Sirius XM channel 132. It's called Marketing Matters. And uh, she has very interesting people call in, and she and her co-host, Americus Reed, are uh, just great fun to listen to. And so uh, check that out as well. Good. Well, thank you very much, Barbara, for, for uh, being with us today. Thank you. And um, we look forward to talking to the audience uh, next week. So thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Hi, this is Colin. I said I'd be back after the show and let you know where you can undertake your custom experience health check. All you simply need to do is to go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash CX health check. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash CX health check. This has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton, but it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.